All right. Hey, let's uh, pray together again, shall we? Father, thank you for a chance to gather this morning and worship you as a church family. And thank you, Lord, for your word that we're about to uh, walk through together. We come in humility, just realizing, Lord, we need your help to uh, understand what we read, to apply it to our lives. So Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us and convict us and comfort us and change us through this time together uh, in your word. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to FBC. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just so glad that you're with us and want to invite you to turn uh, in your Bible, if you have one, to the book of First Peter chapter 3. Uh, starting in verse 13. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. That's where we're going to be as we uh, navigate week six now of our Love Your Church sermon series, where for a while we've been looking at the joy and the privilege and the responsibility of being a part of the local church and what that means. So today is week six, but we're covering uh, chapter seven and eight of the book. As most of you know, we've been using a book of the same name as a resource and a guide, love your church. So in your community groups this week, uh, the discussion will be around chapter seven and eight. And just a heads up of where we're going in the next few weeks, uh, the book ends with chapter eight, right? That's, there's only eight chapters. Uh, but we're going to have three more weeks of this love your church emphasis. And what we're going to do for the last three weeks or the next three weeks is talk about membership. Uh, what does it mean to be a member of a local church? Specifically, what does it mean to be a member of uh, FBC specifically? So we're going to talk for a few weeks about why we practice membership. We actually, uh, it's in our bylaws and it's in our constitution to have uh, members and voting rights and things like that, but we just haven't uh, really practiced it in the past few years, but we've been convinced that we, we want to bring that back. And so rather than having like a separate luncheon or dinner series for a couple weeks that you have to come to, we figure let's just cover all the content uh, on a Sunday morning so that you don't have to come to an additional time. But for three weeks, we're going to use this space and, and the sermon time will basically be like it was a membership class, walking, because we want to bring everybody through this. Uh, we want to get everybody on the same page about what it means. And I'm sure that that stirs up all kinds of questions that you might have. And we hope that uh, in the weeks ahead, we'll be able to answer those questions and have plenty of time to talk through it. So just a heads up, that's what's coming uh, starting next week. But this morning, Love your church week six. Now, maybe you felt a tension so far in the six weeks, this, this tension in our study, because it's been fairly internally focused. You know, love your church, and what does it mean to be a new family, and, and love one another, and care for one another, and, and serve and use your gifts within the church, and maybe you've been wondering, like, well, that can't be the whole story, right? Like, love your church? I mean, what about, what about God's heart for the world? What about people beyond these walls? Like, aren't we supposed to be about something in the world and in the community? And so isn't this, I don't know, kind of narrow of a focus, you know, like belonging, and serving, and caring, and a new family? You've sensed, ah, there's, there's got to be more, right? It's important, it's good for us to understand how we operate here, what it means to be the church, but certainly part of that has to be a conversation about what we're supposed to do out there, right? Worship, connect, grow, and go, right? It's not just worship, connect, and grow, and worship, connect, and grow. We, we have a calling in the world to go out and engage the needs of the world with the gospel. And so you maybe have been listening along and say, well, what about the go piece, Right? We don't want to become uh, spiritually constipated, if I could use such a bold word. And if that 
image or word is too jarring for you, maybe think about it this way. We don't want to become uh, unhealthy in our faith. I remember back in uh, youth group, back in my middle school youth group days, someone explained the Christian life to me this way, and I think it stuck with me ever since. They said, think about the Christian life like a creek or, or a river. And they would say a couple things are necessary in order for that creek or river to be healthy. First, there has to be inflow, right? Water pouring into it. If there's no inflow, then the creek will just dry up, right? And so as a Christian, you need inflow. You need time with Jesus. You need to sit with the Lord. You need your heart to be filled up uh, by God himself and time with him. But it's not just inflow that's important. There has to be outflow, right? A place for that creek, uh, that water to go. Because if there's no outflow and just more and more water pours in, but it has nowhere to go, it becomes a bog and starts to get dirty, right? And stagnant water, we know, is just a breeding ground for bacteria and disease. And so uh, if there's no outflow, then that creek is not going to be healthy. There has to be some outlet. And so in order to be, uh, for you to be a healthy Christian, it can't just be inflow and inflow and inflow and more Bible study and more Bible knowledge and inflow and inflow and inflow. There has to be some way that, that all that God is pouring into you uh, flows out of you into the world, right? That you would go and love others and, and serve others and be used by God in meaningful ways. We have this call to go. We're not just here for us. And so this morning we're going to talk about what it, what it means to go. Uh, what sorts of things should we be about out in the world? And 1 Peter chapter 3 is really going to be our guide. You already heard it read aloud, but we're going to walk through it uh, more slowly. Look at the text with me in verse 13. It says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I know uh, we're just kind of helicoptering in to the book of First Peter here, right? We're just jumping in midway, and so there's some context that we need to understand with what's going on here. Maybe you remember some of this from our uh, First Peter study we did a few years ago, where as a church, we just walked through the book of First Peter in its entirety. Really, I uh, really enjoyed that study. Uh, maybe you'll remember some of these pieces from that. Then the letter of First Peter, it's written to Christians uh, churches in the first century, and unlike the book of Romans or Ephesians or Corinthians that's written to one local church in one city, uh, the book of First Peter was meant to be spread around, and there's, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, it identifies a few different recipients of this letter, a handful of, of provinces in Asia Minor that were all facing a similar situation. And you can get clues to the situation that the Christians were facing from the passage we just read. There were some challenges there, right? Verse 13 talked about those potentially causing them harm. Uh, verse 14 speaks about suffering. Verse 16 mentions those speaking maliciously about them. And so we have this theme, maybe you remember running through the book of 1 Peter, that early Christians are living in exile. 
Exile not in the literal geographic sense that they've been forcefully removed from their homeland like many in the Old Testament were, but they are in exile in the sense that they are out of place in the city in which they live. They're they're exiles because their way of life as Christians makes them off-putting and out of place in their communities. In parts of the New Testament, the background or the situation that the Christians were facing would be, you know, outright persecution, imprisonment, you know, uh, facing death possibly because of their commitment to Jesus. Uh, But that's not as much the context of 1 Peter. It's more likely that Peter was writing to Christians who were facing more subtle opposition. People who viewed them with suspicion and hostility. The Christians were criticized or mocked. And so it's not as much, we're going to kill you because you're a Christian, but because you're a Christian, you're pretty strange and out of place and a threat to the social order. And we don't really like you, so we're going to keep our distance from you. And so first century Christians were remarkably different from their Greco-Roman neighbors in a number of ways. We've talked about these before, but it's worth remembering. Their way of life was different from those around them. First, because they refused to worship the emperor and they refused to worship local gods. As Christians, they were to worship Jesus and the one true God. And so in their context, in their cities, I mean, every area of life virtually was was permeated with the worship of other gods or of the emperor. So if you went to a social club, uh, household cults, you could say, um, they would be venerating false gods and and spirits. Uh, Hosts at a dinner party would pour out a libation or a pinch of incense at the beginning of the banquet to a local god or to the emperor. And early Christians, naturally, refused to participate. They said, we can worship Jesus and Jesus alone, not these false gods. So these false gods that you're worshiping are either uh, nothing at all, they're just made up in your imagination, or they're demons, and so we're not going to worship them. And so because of this, Christians were called atheists. You might have heard that before. They were called atheists because they refused to worship or believe in the other gods that the Romans and their neighbors would worship. And the neighbors were very troubled by this because if if the people of the city weren't worshiping the deity or tribal god of the region, then they thought that would bring about harm upon them. Uh, Their crops wouldn't prosper. There wouldn't be flourishing and so on. And so they really didn't like that Christians wouldn't go along with their plan. Next, uh, Christians crossed ethnic lines and other social barriers. And so rather than in the ancient world just associating with people who were in the same class as you or people who who looked like you, Christian gatherings for worship in their communities were quite diverse. And people would look down on them because they welcomed uh, women or they welcomed the poor or they welcomed slaves to be seen as equals alongside, you know, Roman citizens or alongside the rich. They said, you Christians are foolish because of that. This sort of leveling of the ground that took place in the church. Next, as we've talked about before, early Christians held to an exclusive sex ethic, meaning for a Christian, you expressed your sexuality in the confines of a male-female marriage. That was the only appropriate place where sexuality was to be expressed. I mean, today we view that, or some would view that as like traditional, 
but for then, I mean, it was, it was this radical uh, way of living in the world. Because in the Roman world, um, sexual expression was just all over the place. Especially if you were a man, a Roman citizen, uh, you could be married, sure, but then you could you know, go visit prostitutes or uh, sleep with slaves or even young boys or whoever you want. There, they were uh, really no bounds on their expression of sexuality. And then the Christians came along and said, actually, uh, no, husbands, you have to remain faithful to your wife just how she is expected to remain faithful to you. They're, they're equals in marriage. And in fact, your marriage is telling a story about God and about the world and that union is, is holy and something to be protected. Not only that, but the male-female binary is to show a complementary, uh, complementary way that God has made us, how we need one another. And so they look to scripture and say, this is how sexuality is to be expressed. But the world around them looked at that and said, you guys are crazy. And they didn't like that at all. This whole idea of no sex before marriage or outside of heterosexual marriage, it was, it was, it was a big deal. Then as it is now. People often will say the same things to Christians today. Further, Christians were, were absolutely against abortion and infanticide. I mean, in the ancient world, unwanted babies, uh, whether born or unborn, would regularly be discarded. And you've heard the language before of, of raising a child. That comes from this, this ancient custom where a newborn would be placed at the feet of a Roman father. And if he desired the child, wanted to raise the child as his own, he would literally pick up the child, raise the child into his arms, and then that child then had status as a son or a daughter. It would be valued in the home, and they would bring that child up. But if the child was not desired, he would not raise the child or pick it up. And then the child, whether it was because it was the wrong gender, which most often meant if it was a girl back in the ancient world, or if it was uh, sick in some way, didn't look quite right, um, or simply they just didn't want it for whatever reason. It wasn't a good time for the family. I don't know. The father would just leave it there, and then the baby would be discarded and, and tossed in, in a creek or in a river or down a drain or um, left out, exposed to the elements for wild animals to come or slavers to come pick up the child and raise it into slavery. I mean, you, it, you read the history on this. It's just horrific stuff, but perfectly legal and perfectly normal in the ancient world. This is what people did. Nothing wrong with it until the Christians came around and said, wait a second, absolutely not. Every child, no matter how big or small, is, is made in the image of God and worthy of life and protection. And so the Christians went around bringing those unwanted, discarded children into their homes and raising them as their own sons and daughters. But again, to the, to the surrounding community, they'd say, that's very strange. That makes no sense. You Christians are pretty weird. Also, Christians were nonviolent. Uh, until uh, several centuries later, after Christ, uh, Christians wouldn't serve in the military. Um, they were a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. If you killed a Christian, they wouldn't come and kill you back. They'd rather be killed and be, uh, be wronged than to do wrong to others. And so, for, put all that together, their neighbors would, would look at these early Christians and say, you guys are ridiculous. They were claimed as, as foolish, superstitious, slandered as, as cannibals. They were called uh, incestuous. <laughs> they were seen as disruptors of the social order, dangerous to the well-being of society. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the same accusations that are, are put on Christians today. 
Christians felt like exiles in their city, not at home. And I think in 2022, we can relate to that. That as Christians, if we're gonna follow Jesus faithfully, then it's gonna be somewhat uncomfortable for us in the world. We're gonna gonna feel a bit out of place. We're gonna be seen as as odd by our neighbors or, or, or worse. And so, we have to figure out how are we gonna live and navigate life in exile? How do we handle this space? If this is our reality, what do we do about that? Because we don't always respond in the best way, do we? Sometimes in light of all of this, feeling like an exile, we'll we'll do one of a few things. One, we might shift into combat mode. We'll become combative. We'll say, well, if they're going to be mean and grumpy to me, I'm going to be mean and grumpy right back. I'm going to fight fire with fire, and I'm going to be crusty, and I'm going to go on Facebook and write my long little post about how, how bad the world is and those people over there, and I'm, gonna, and I'm just going to be grumpy and criticize and be mean-spirited and give them sass right back and be very punchy. It's us versus them, and we've got to take them down. You all know people like that. Maybe you're someone like that. I don't know. We go to combat mode. Or the other th- way is we go to compromise. And we say it's just too hard to hold to this biblical conviction, whether it's the exclusive claims of Christ or biblical teaching on sexuality. We say it's just too hard. There's too much pressure, and so we're going we're gonna to move away from it. We're going to compromise. We're going to abandon Scripture and say, no, we'll, we'll let a little bit of this or a little bit of that into our worldview, and it's, it's no big deal, and we start to throw out the parts of Scripture that we don't like. Combat, compromise. Sometimes we'll go into retreat mode. We just want to be hermits. And just like withdraw and not deal with it, not deal with our neighbors, not deal with uh, anything out in the world and try and just, again, like start up a commune in Napa Valley or something and in ways that wouldn't be terrible. But um, I don't think it's the call God has for us. Uh, or sometimes we're just stuck in confusion and we just, we just don't know what to do. And there's this constant angst or tension as we navigate the world about how do we love people and hold to the truth of scripture and share the gospel and also, uh, again, uh, not abandon scripture how do we, and we don't know how to do that well. And so First Peter, I think, can be a helpful guide for us this morning. Because look at what he's calling the church to. Look at verse 13 again. He says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And then skip, skip ahead to verse 16. He says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Verse 17, for it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So you notice what's repeated in the text a few times and in a few ways. He's calling them to doing good. Even if you look back to verse 9, he says, hey, I want you to repay evil with blessing. If people are mistreating you, don't mistreat them back. Repay them with blessing. Verse 11, he calls them to, to do good in another way. And so the main point is he says, I want you to go, church, and do good deeds. Throughout the book, we see this theme. Go, do good. Prove people wrong by your love, by your good works. He says earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, he says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Live such good lives of love and blessing and caring for other people that even though people might uh, throw accusations at you, uh, the truth will be shown in how you live. Go and do good works. 
Now, again, some of us go to combat, some of us go to compromise, some of us go to retreat, some of us stay in confusion. I don't think many of us naturally go to, I'm going to repay evil with good. Right? I'm, I'm going to do good to those around me. It's hard enough for us to love people who love us. <laughs> it's hard enough for us to love people who are good and kind to us, let alone those who don't like us or mistreat us or don't understand us or whatever. Now, remember, it's, it's key to remember who's writing this here. You know who the author of First Peter is? Peter, okay? <laughs> There's a clue there. Peter. Uh, now, think about Peter. What do we know about Peter in the Gospels? He's, he's rather right, impulsive. We spend a lot of time with Peter walking through the Gospel of John. He, he's impulsive. He's brash. He gets rebuked by Jesus. Remember when um, the, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden? What does he do? He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, he takes his sword out. He chops an ear off. And again, we know he wasn't aiming for the ear, okay? He was ready to do some damage. And so in that moment, he wasn't saying, hey, repay evil with blessing. They're coming to arrest you, Jesus. Let's just bless them and be so kind to them. He wanted to kill him with his sword. And yet here, there's been this this shift, right? It's a noticeable change in, in Peter's approach and how he's calling Christians to live. Not combat, not compromise either. They're going to accuse you and slander you and harm you, but keep on loving them. Do good to them and in the world. This cartoon captures it well. Uh, this, I wasn't finished oppressing you, he says. And the man is just simply washing the man's feet, serving. So even if those are wanting to mistreat you or harm you or, or just in subtle ways be rude to you, bless them, love them, do good deeds. We're still called to this today as the church. We're called to bring children out of extreme poverty, and that's why we we partner with Compassion International, and so many of you give so generously to sponsor kids in Togo that they might have food and clothing and education and medicine. Some of you have taken foster kids or work with uh, disadvantaged families to provide homes for them. So many of you help serve meals at Transformation Village in Vallejo, helping those who are homeless or trying to get back on their feet uh, have resources. So many of you serve or have served at the Red Awning Cafe, where we serve breakfast to middle schoolers and provide a safe place to them before school. And I can't tell you how many times people mention Red Awning Cafe to me. Again, in our years here, whenever I mention I work at you know, First Baptist Church, people always mention around town, oh, that's the church with the breakfast thing for the middle schoolers. It's like, yeah, that, that stands out to the community. Or they might think that we're crazy or believe all kinds of weird things uh, in their minds. And yet they say, hey, you love our kids. That's what stands out. So many of you serve and give generously to countless ministries inside and outside the church. You have a special concern for widows. You've visited people in, in prison. You help the homeless. You care for refugees. So encouraging to see the good works that you all do. So this is a reminder just to keep it up, to continue to be marked by good deeds. It's encouraging if you go look up the the statistics on uh, volunteer hours and giving to charity. People of faith are always at the top of the list. People of faith give more time. People of faith give more uh, money to charity. People of faith adopt and foster kids at over two and a half times the rate of the general population. And so yes, the, the church's record in history has its blemishes, 
no doubt. We could talk about that. And yet, the legacy of the church is marked by incredible good work in the world. We, we can look to Christians leading the way in starting orphanages, and the church leading the way in abolishing slavery, and Christians leading the way in starting hospitals and universities, and uh, scientific discovery, all motivated by Christians. I mean, even the idea of, again, protecting the weak and the poor, still having dignity and value, and caring for the vulnerable, universal human rights, Right? If you ask, hey, do you believe in human rights? Every one of you would say yes. Um, that's not a secular idea. That's a, a rooted in scripture, coming from Christians. All people having value and dignity, and that the strong shouldn't just kill off the weak. Right? Most, a lot of people in the ancient world, that's just how they thought. If you're strong, if you have power, if you have money, <clears throat> your life has value, whereas the poor or the weak or the sick, who cares? Kill them off, move on, do what you want. But then Christians came along and said, actually, no. <laughs> Every human being is made in the image of God. It's rooted in the way of Jesus. Values like justice and love and, and equality. This is part of our legacy, church. And so we're called to the same work, to go out into the world and continue to, to do good deeds. But you notice that there's more than just doing good deeds in the text. There's more than just our actions that we're called to. Maybe you caught it in verse 15. It says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. So we're called to go and do good deeds and we're called to go and share good news. We're to share the gospel, give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ. And I love how the Love Your Church book that we've been reading puts those two concepts together. I love how this passage, of course, puts those two concepts together, doing good deeds and sharing good news, because sometimes we gravitate towards one or the other. And we say, well, if we're to go, it's about making disciples and proclaiming the gospel and, and preaching the word and having people come to Jesus. And it absolutely is that. But sometimes we'll say, no, it's actually more about, again, feeding the hungry, helping the homeless, bringing people out of poverty, um, caring for those who are hurting, visiting the sick. But according to the Bible, it's both. And it has to be both. And it's always been both. Doing good deeds and sharing good news. A church that shares good news without doing good deeds is a poor representation of the heart of God and his love. But a church that does good deeds but doesn't share good news is without power to save anyone. And it just leaves people in their sin headed to hell with a more comfortable seat on the Titanic. So we have to share the gospel and give people the good news of what Christ has done to save us and do good deeds. Now notice a few things from the text. Verse 15, first, our good deeds are supposed to prompt questions. You see that? Verse 15 assumes that everyone is gonna ask you, people are gonna ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Why do you live the way that you do? Why do you spend your money the way that you do? Why do you give generously the way that you do? Why do you love people the way that you do? I don't get it. I get caring for your family and you know, meeting the needs of your kids, of course, and we all do that. 
But, but, but what about people who aren't in your family or in your tribe or your neighbors who you barely know? You're, you're giving and, and working and, and caring to love them. That doesn't really add up. So it's our good deeds prompt questions and our, our life of love for our neighbors is intended to open doors uh, that we can then communicate with people and share the gospel and give a reason for the hope that we have. Second, you notice from the text that we are called to give an answer for our hope. Right? People are going to ask about the hope that you have. What's, what's the reason? And the Greek word here is apologia. It's uh, often, uh, well, it's sometimes translated giving a defense for your hope, a, a reason that you believe. It's where we get the word apologetics, which right, is the discipline of defending the faith, giving reasonable arguments for why uh, believing in Jesus is rational and true and compelling. And so we are called to defend our hope. But I love how in the book Tony Merida unpacked it uh, with a few great phrases because he, he pointed out that sometimes we get intimidated thinking about apologetics like defending the hope that I have. And we picture like some you know, public debate on a college uh, campus with an atheist scholar and like you're gonna be given the mic and have to go at it. And the reality is most of us aren't gonna be in that place. Some of us are called to that. But, but more often we will be having ordinary conversations about our hope out in front of our house or in our living room with a neighbor. And so Merida writes it a few ways. He says, this practice of defending your hope is more about adoration than argumentation. It's more about a joyful song in your heart than a knockdown argument on paper. It's not just for the elite special forces Christians, but for everyone who abounds with gospel hope. He says, don't picture a debate on a college campus, but an honest conversation in your living room. And so we're not all called to uh, public debate with atheist scholars or skeptics, but we are all called to sharing the good news with our neighbors and why we have the hope that we do. And so can we articulate how Jesus has changed our lives? In the, in the warmth of our living room, can we talk with a neighbor about the joy we have in Christ, about the confidence that we have in our future, that our eternity is secure because of Jesus? Can we talk about uh, the peace that it gives us to know that we have a good Father in heaven who loves us and knows what we need? Can we talk about the, the joy and the, the lifting of a weight that comes from realizing there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? That in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. We were dead in our sins and separated from God because of our sin. But God in his great love and in his great mercy sent his son Jesus to die for us. And he saved us and he adopted us and brought us into his family. And then we've, we've experienced his love. Can we talk about the, the freedom that we have in Christ? Of not having to, to earn the love and favor of God, but having it given to us freely as a gift, received by faith in Christ. Can we talk about a love not based on performance and works? Do people sense that we are a people abounding in hope and joy? 
Not that it's always perfect and rosy and we never face bumps in life, but do people sense this, this deep confidence we have because of Jesus? So our goodness is to prompt questions. We're going to have to give a, an answer for the hope that we have. And lastly, the text tells us to be prepared. We have to be prepared. He doesn't say, always be prepared to have your pastor explain the gospel to your neighbors. He doesn't say, always be prepared to have that uh, Bible scholar from church explain the gospel to your neighbors. He says, always be prepared, you, you to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Right? Sometimes we operate, just get them here and the, the religious professionals will take over, and, you know, Matt or Ian or whoever, they'll worry about that. I just gotta get them here. And, and, and of course, inviting people to church is a good thing. And I hope that the preaching of the gospel here on Sunday uh, is used powerfully by God to, to reach people. And, and yet, that doesn't let us off the hook because we, we all individually have this responsibility to share the gospel. And some people in your neighborhoods or where you work might never come through these doors. And so you're called wherever you are to share the hope that you have in Christ. And so it's a challenge to, to not just wing it in the moment, right? But actually prepare as you would prepare for other things in your life. Think about when you have a, a test coming up, you get ready for it. When you want to get healthy, Pastor Ian and I were, were talking about this as we were putting the sermon together this week, thinking about the parallel with, with health and fitness, right? If you want to eat healthy, if you want to exercise more, uh, that, that sort of thing doesn't just happen, right? They don't ever like just, just, just like wandered their way into like amazing physique and healthy eating habits. No. We have to prepare for that. We have to plan ahead our days, look at our schedule. When are we going to go to the gym? What are we going to eat? I know if I don't like meal plan and look at what I'm going to eat during the day, it'll be like two o'clock and I'll have three bags of chips and Panda Express. It's just like, that's where I go. I'm just like, it's a magnet for my heart. It just takes me there. Uh, but if I, right? Amen. Um, but if, if we plan ahead and we know what's coming, we say, hey, I, I know um, as a human being, I tend to get hungry. That's, that's going to happen in my future. So let me prepare and think about what am I going to do to do that well? Or think about I'm, I'm uh, do NBA fantasy basketball. Anybody else play fantasy basketball? You guys are like, who cares? But there, or fantasy football. We have some fantasy football people in here. So for um, fantasy sports, there's what's called a, a fantasy draft, where at the start of the season, you pick all your players. And everybody gets together, and you're all picking players one at a time. And my NBA fantasy draft is tonight at 8.45, pray for me, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. But they have these things called mock drafts, where it's like a practice draft, where you go online with a bunch of random people, and you, you do a draft, you like pick your players, but none of it, it's like, it doesn't count, it's just a, a fake one, and then it's just meant to prepare you for, for the real one. And so, my, you know, my one is tonight, and so I've been this week doing a lot of preparation, doing these mock drafts, and Amber's like, how many mock drafts have you done? And I was like, I thought about it, and I was like, probably like 15. And she's like, 15? What are you doing? Spending your time there? 15 mock drafts? Are you kidding for just one real one? Like, what do you? And um, I was like, yeah, because I want to be prepared. And I tell you, as I've, as I've done more of the mock drafts, I'm, I'm like ready. Some of these clowns need like a whole minute or minute and a half to think about their pick, but I have like five, 10 seconds. I know what player I want because I already like ran through the scenarios. I know when my turn is. I know who I want to grab. So, um, Preparation and, and prayer. So, um, and, and think about it. 
We all, we all know the feeling, too, of like a, a missed opportunity. Have you all, we've all felt that. We've, we've looked back on a conversation, whether it's about faith or, or some other meaningful conversation, seeking reconciliation, some deep conversation with a friend. Right? Haven't you looked back at a conversation and been like, man, I wish I would have said blank. Or I wish I wouldn't have said blank. But in the moment I froze or in the moment I didn't know what to do or I wish I would have asked this question or I feel like I really just fumbled that opportunity, right? We've probably all felt that. Uh, and so this is a call to say, hey, we know these opportunities are gonna come. So let's think ahead of time about how we wanna handle them. Not, not saying it's all gonna go perfect if you think about it beforehand, but we're gonna be more prepared. I think we'll be more pleased with, oh yeah, I knew that was coming and I actually knew what to say where normally I don't. Something like that might happen. Or have you ever thought, again, just more thinking about preparation, have you ever had to give a presentation at work or for a class or some sort of project and you, uh, it was kind of thrown on you at the last minute? Like you, ever, you forgot about it and then you didn't realize you were supposed to give a, a presentation or your, your boss gave you something to do and you didn't, had, didn't have much time to prepare for it and it stirred up like some anxiety in you? Right, have you ever you've been there? Um, so like, think about even if now we were to like, put you on the spot and say, hey, I want you to come up, um, Brian, and come, could you please share a few words with us right now up on the stage? Yeah. See, he's really nervous right now, right? So uh, as most of us would be, right? No preparation on the spot, just told, hey, you're gonna have an opportunity to speak. A lot of us, would, would there'd be anxiety. But if uh, I had told you, hey, last week, hey, Brian, I want you to come up and share a few words on the stage, um, you'd probably still be a little nervous, but <laughs> it would be a little bit different. Again, the idea is simple, just preparation. It's like God telling us, hey, I'm not gonna tell you when, but you're gonna have some opportunities to share the hope that you have in Christ. So be ready. Think ahead of time what you would say. It's a, it's a simple exercise you can even do just driving home or with your spouse or around the dinner table tonight. Just, just think out loud, hey, if someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? If someone were to ask you, hey, what difference has Jesus made in your life? Hey, hey, why do you spend so much time thinking about or talking about this, this whole Jesus thing? What would you say? You know, and then just practice talking through it out loud together. So, and that might even help solidify and help you learn to articulate some of these truths of Scripture out loud if, if you're not used to, to doing that. So our good deeds are to prompt questions, but good deeds alone cannot connect the dots of the gospel for people. So we can't say, hey, I'm gonna love people and bake a casserole and hope that they figure it out. Right? People need us to help them connect the dots of the gospel to put it together. So we're called to go and do good deeds and go and share good news. Now the last piece I wanna, I wanna look at really quickly that we need to understand is found in verse 15 as well. And we skipped over it, but I wanna look back at the start of the verse. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So this morning we have to talk about our hearts. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. The context is reminding us that this, this work, this call to go is not gonna be easy. There's gonna be confusion and frustration and it's probably gonna be pretty clunky along the way. We're gonna be misunderstood. And yet Peter is calling us to revere Jesus. That, that Jesus in our hearts would be bigger than, than anything else because that's what's gonna to lead to a life lived out like this. Because the biggest reason we often don't wanna talk about our faith or share our faith is, uh, let's be honest, it's probably because we're afraid. I know I've 
can relate with that. You're like, oh, what is this person going to think? Or if I bring up Jesus again in this way, are they going to get offended? Or they might even get mad if I try and talk to them about this. Or if I invite them to church, there's going to be this, this tension or it's going to change the relationship. Or what, what do you mean I need to be saved from it? You know, there, there's going to be this, this change in the relationship. And so we wonder how we'll look and how we'll sound. And we're so focused on like the fear of man and what other people will think that we, we don't want to obey God. There's a book written that was called when, uh, when People Are Big and God is Small. And I haven't read the book, it might be garbage, but the title's great. And it reminds us that sometimes people are big in our eyes and God is small. And we need to reverse that, to revere Christ as Lord and seek to honor him and live for his glory and let the chips fall where they may. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, man, all this talk about sharing my faith and talking about Jesus, that's intimidating or scary or like evangelism is like a bad word for you and you feel like you need to go home and take a shower or something, um, hear me out. If that's you, my, my call to you would not be like, hey, more pressure and guilt and you, you need to do it. So just like get to work and, and get out there. My, my invitation to you would be slow down and sit with the Lord and look at your heart and ask him to help you see clearly what's going on in your heart because clearly there's something there that, that needs to change before just, hey, go and, and get to work. Like if your car breaks down, uh, you could just get frustrated and be like, well, it's not working the way it's supposed to, so I'm just gonna like get out here and just, I'm gonna try harder and I'm gonna push this car as hard as I can and that's how I'm gonna get around. You could try that and you'd get maybe somewhere, but probably what you should do is look under the hood right, and try and figure out why isn't the engine running the way it's supposed to, and let's fix that, and then, and then the car is going to run the way it should. So I'd invite you to do some of that work in your heart, as Peter says, revere Christ as Lord. That, that's the only way we're going to live this out, is if in our hearts we're captured by the goodness of God. We're, we're, we're captured by the, the glory of Christ, if we care more about what he thinks than anyone else, right? I have the love of the king, and so I don't care what the peasants think. It's only then that we'll be able to actually do this, and not a peasants in a condescending way. You, you know what I mean. Um, and I, I know this as well, again, from just experience. I, I'm a chronic people pleaser. Man, I, I want to be liked. I want people to like me. I want people to like my sermons. I want people to say nice things about me. It's just something that I struggle with. And, and I've had to wrestle with this, just revering Christ, fearing God more than I fear man. Especially in preaching, right? Because part of the job of a pastor is to tell people things they don't want to hear. And so I get up here each week, and often I'll realize I'm going to say plenty of things that, that you know, you, you're not going to like, and it's probably going to offend you or you or you or whoever. And every week, it's like I have to get up and tell a mom that her baby is ugly. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, in love. You know, you need to hear this. And, and sometimes there's, that's a weight. I, I feel that. I feel that. And um, so part of my internal work in my own heart is to, to fear the Lord more than man, to revere Christ, to say, Jesus, I want to please you. Right? I, really, it's an audience of one, right? I want you to be pleased with my words, Lord. I want to honor you. And sometimes there's going to be things that we all need to hear that we don't want to hear, and that's just part of it. I heard this great quote that said, you can either fear man and live as a slave to everyone's opinion, or fear God and live in freedom. It's like fear, fear man and live as a slave to everyone's opinion, or fear God and live in freedom. And so, friends, the invitation is to, 
to spend time with Jesus, to, to worship Jesus, to bring your heart before Jesus, to learn to revere him and, and fear the Lord more than fearing people. And that's what's gonna lead to this life where we will go with, with, with eagerness, with joy, with diligence. And so we have an opportunity to do just that this morning as we come to communion and we'll take the elements together as a church family to revere Christ, to honor Jesus, to, to look to the hope of the gospel that Christ died for us. His body was broken for you and for me. His, his blood was shed for our sins so that we would be forgiven and reconciled to the God who loves us. And so we take communion together as often as we do to remember the Lord, to remember the gospel, to remember our hope, that as we look intently at, at Christ and the gospel, our, our hearts would well up with joy and we'd abound in hope and that we then live out of that place of abundance. And so friends, we practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means even if you're visiting or you're uh, from out of town or whatever, as long as you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll take the elements together. Lord Jesus, we wanna revere you together. We wanna honor you as Lord. We wanna worship you. And we come, Lord, to receive the elements of communion representing your body and your blood. We come with grateful hearts, realizing the great cost of our salvation, that you, Jesus, died for us. You bore our sins on the cross. And so as we take these elements, Lord Jesus, we proclaim your death until you come again. So we remember this isn't the end of the story, Jesus. You rose from the grave and we have this new life in you. And so we thank you for the hope that we have. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.